All right, I know it's early Sunday morning, but did that get you pumped? And it's just the first week of the 75th anniversary of March Madness. This is madness, sheer madness. The road to the Final Four, the big dance, began earlier this week with the first four play-in games. By Thursday, non-stop games were tipping off day and night to catch you up in the frenzy. Salt Lake City didn't disappoint with its history of, uh, of uh, its reputation of classic games. Knocked off a number one yesterday. And uh, little Harvard knocked off Georgetown, the powerhouse from ages, uh, a couple of days ago. By last night, by the end of last night, 64 teams around the country had been reduced to 24 in this one and out uh, extravaganza. You can feel the excitement. Do you have a favorite in the, t in the tournament? I heard somebody cheering about Marquette this morning and, the, and their uh, uh, club in a butler yesterday. How about you? Have you got a bracket filled out? How's that going? I went to five schools after high school to cover my bases. Unfortunately, two of them were outside the U.S. and another was a graduate school of theology. None of them have a horse in this race. <clears throat> so I adopted two other schools to bulk up my chances. The Utah State Aggies while I lived in Logan for six years and then the Utes here in Salt Lake when my family and I moved here 25 years ago. <clears throat> but this year, the best connected hope I can claim in the NCAA tournament is a personal friendship with Mike Krzyzewski, Coach K of the Duke Blue Demons. Mike and I went to college together where we endured freshman hazing together and bonded. Well, we'll see if the Blue Demons are really blue demons or just blue smurfs this year. <clears throat> How about you? Whether your team is a second seed fave or a number 15 underdog, they say this is the best year for any team to have a chance to win it all. Of course, what have a chance means is up for grabs when the odds are 150 billion to one if you picked all the highest seeds across the board in your bracket. Computers have been playing using algorithms calculated on team season scores, rebounds, assists, three-point percentages, and even values for loose balls and hours of practice. How do you think they did? Turns out that cold statistical precision is just as unsuccessful as human intuition. No matter how much analysis you do, you're still stuck with the way the ball bounces. In fact, I heard about someone who won their office pool by basing their picks on who would win if the team mascots fought. How do you pick between the Ohio State Buckeyes, a nut, and the St. Louis University Billikens, a weird-looking good luck elf charm? Now, even if you're not a basketball fan, you may be paying attention to this bracket thing. Did you catch the flutter on Twitter about President Obama's picks? The thing about bracket drama is anybody can do it. If basketball's not your thing, there are March Madness brackets for rock music on MTV, for barbecue restaurants in Atlanta, or for Star Wars characters. So you can get into this bracket thing. Brackets draw you into making choices by making it seem easy to pick a winner. See, if you had to pick the number one team out of 64, the one that would win it all, it's just too hard, you'd blow it off. But by putting them in pairs, 
All you have to do is pick one out of two. Which one of these two is better? It doesn't feel so impossible. Even if you don't know a foul shot from a jumper, you can name a winner in that kind of a setup. That's what makes March Madness so engaging or maddening when a number 15 seed beats a two. Can you feel the excitement, the hopes and dreams? Who will win is what drives this. Isn't that what it's all about? I mean, winning is the point, isn't it? It was like that in Jerusalem on the day we call Palm Sunday, the first day of the week before Easter. When Jesus arrived in town, the atmosphere was like March Madness, exciting enthusiasm in anticipation of a winning bracket. Just listen to what Luke says in Luke 19, verses 37 to 40. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees, they were kind of sore losers in the crowd, said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You see, it had been a long, frustrating season for these people. They were ready for a change. God's people had been given promises of a champion for what seemed like ages. After an opening season loss in the garden, God had promised a return match with a different outcome. In Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you, he means the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, that's the serpent's team, and hers. He will crush your head. Doesn't that sound like March Madness? He'll crush your head? Later in the season, another prediction helped stir up the fans as it described the team captain arriving for the big dance in style. In the book of Zechariah, uh, chapter 9, verse 9, he said, Rejoice greatly, shout, people of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey. You hear the echoes on Palm Sunday of this. And then there was the call for a pep rally with the team cheer that's found in Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can see and hear those echoes in the streets of Jerusalem and why the people on Palm Sunday were pumped. They've been waiting for this for what seems like forever. But there were also some dour commentators saying that the path would not be as smooth as expected, even predicting a stunning loss that might mean the end of the season. For example, here are some comments from verses in Isaiah 53. Isaiah is looking down the road to the finals of the big dance, and he envisions that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. There's that word crushed again. He was beaten and afflicted. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Nice press, eh? Not exactly what you want to hear about your hometown team. Which will it be? The victory of salvation or the loss of death? How will the champ do leading his team in the big dance? Let's take a moment and just pray and ask God, 
you open this up to us. Lord God, you made the universe. You know the secrets of our hearts. Here we are before you today with our hopes and dreams, our disappointments, our losses. You know we face fears that you will not find us fit to hang out with or even desirable to meet. But we are here in your presence. Because where else can we go? No one, nothing else will do. We want your love. Show us your love. Don't leave us in suspense, Lord. Have mercy on us. In the name and grace of Jesus. Amen. Now when Jesus set out on his way to Jerusalem, this mix of hope and hype and dark omens was on his mind. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read that as the time approached, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. But before, just before he began that trip to the final week, Luke set, tell, lets us in on what was on Jesus' mind. In Luke 9.22, just a few verses earlier, it shows that Jesus has a premonition that Jerusalem is where he'll be arrested, rejected, condemned, and murdered. It says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed. He was telling this to his fans, his followers, his disciples. That's what was on Jesus' mind that Palm Sunday even while the crowds were already savoring victory and salvation from the domination of the Romans. Jesus has been contemplating this March madness since he started down the road to Jerusalem. So with that on Jesus' mind and what's on ours, let's listen in on a conversation about this between Jesus and a guy who sounds like he's hungry to win the big one. It's called often the story or the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is how it starts. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See what I mean about this guy? He goes straight for the kill. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants all there is to get. He wants to be crowned the world champion. But notice something. I'm not sure he really knows the game he's playing. Inheriting is not something you do. It's something that happens to you. But Jesus doesn't give him a hard time about that. In verse 26, Jesus says, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus' response is a thing of beauty. He runs the tried and true rabbinic give and go. Like Woody Allen when he replied to the question, Why does a rabbi always answer a question with a question? Woody answered, why shouldn't a rabbi always answer a question with a question? Jesus invites the man to answer the question himself, to put his cards on the table, to go for it. And so he does. In verse 27, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty good summary of the Old Testament playbook, huh? Love God with all you are. Love your neighbor as you'd like yourself to be loved. Sounds good, doesn't it, if you know the same playbook? But notice that the guy's reply reveals that his question wasn't a real question. 
It was a fake. It was a test. He wasn't really asking to find some, out something he didn't know. He thought he already had the answer. And Jesus could have skewered him on that. But that's not what Jesus does. Listen, verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Do you see how Jesus is mercifully kind to this guy? He doesn't say, duh, dude. He simply says, nice shot. Of course, then he encourages him with a bit of a zinger, do this and you will live. Remember, the original question was about how to inherit eternal life, not just what do I have to do today. So how to win the big one is still out there. This game is not over. So the guy who claims to know the rules and senses that Jesus' encouragement is also a challenge gets ready for another shot. In verse 29, But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? You see, the guy's sensing an open lane. This time, the guy's not looking just to put Jesus on the spot. He wants to protect his lead after he thinks he scored first. He wants to justify himself in the face of this new test and score big. Who is my neighbor? In other words, who is eligible to play anyway? Is every last starving person in outer Mongolia my neighbor? Is every panhandler in Salt Lake City my neighbor? Sounds like a gotcha move to me. He's saying, unless we can agree about how to define this term neighbor, you can't catch me. This is a steal, a fast break, and then a sudden stop behind the three-point line, letting the defender bump you, and then shoot to try to burn a four-point play and put the game out of reach. That's what's going on here. And at this point in the game, Jesus breaks the pattern of answering questions with questions. He slows the game down. He's playing long court ball. He's running a play that takes time to develop. He tells a parable. A story that looks like an answer to this last question. Who is my neighbor? So let's look at that. Luke 10, verses 30 to 36. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? See what I mean about looking like an answer? When we get to the end of this story, we and the guy find out that the whole story is just really a lead-in to another question. That Jesus, ever the rabbi. 
Jesus' question, who was a neighbor to the man who was down and out, is packed with the whole story behind it. As it turns out, the priests and Levite are not bad players. They're playing just the way the playbook said they should. They're playing their positions so they won't foul out of the game and they can continue to contribute their part, serving others who need their help. If they were to touch the body of the man who appears dead, they would be called unclean and thrown out of the game, leaving the team shorthanded, unable to do their duty, serving those in need. And then out of the blue comes a guy who's no better in the eyes of the home team than that guy oozing blood on the road, a Samaritan. He's the ugly stepbrother to the Jewish people. These kind of people were considered no better than dead bodies. And if you were Jewish, even to be touched by one of them would leave you unclean, ejected from the game. Do you see what's happened? The flow of the game has changed. Jesus has put a twist in this story that is a no-win situation for the expert in the law who thinks that keeping the rules is the way to win eternal life. If he plays the game of life like the priest or the Levite, he'll keep his nose clean and he won't foul out of the game, but he won't win the game because he won't love his neighbor. If he's willing to get in the game like the Samaritan, he will win the love of your neighbor part of the game, but he'll be as good as dead. Which will he choose? Which would you choose? Who do you think will be the winner? Who did the expert in the law pick? Luke 10, verse 37, tells us, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. What do you think? Good choice? Listen to Jesus. Go and do likewise. In other words, be as good as dead and be merciful. What a choice. Thankfully, those are not the only choices being made. The big upset, the Cinderella in this story is this. The first and last character that Jesus mentions, the central character throughout, is not the Samaritan. The defining character in Jesus' story, the one to whom all the others respond, first and last, one way or another, is the man who was stripped, beaten, and left for dead. Now remember, Jesus told this story on the road to Jerusalem where he knew that he, like this man, was going to be stripped, beaten, and left for dead. In other words, this story is not primarily about being a good Samaritan. Jesus is not giving us another rule, one more thing to do in order to gain eternal life. This is not a parable of inheriting eternal life by doing good works. Inheriting eternal life does not happen by random or planned acts of human kindness. Inheriting eternal life does not come by our own efforts to be good, however well-inspired or well-pursued. Here's the twist. Jesus' story is an invitation to respond to the man stripped, beaten, and left for dead. It's an invitation to mercy 
rather than to do more good works. Jesus is preparing this guy and us for what's coming. The game of life is about how you respond to Jesus, the one who was stripped of his glory, the one who joined us in our beaten up and beaten down lives, the one who was put to death for us. If you start focusing on the Samaritan in this story, you're setting yourself up to be like the priest, the Levite, and probably the lawyer guy. Trying to keep some rule that will make you acceptable on the basis of how much good you do and who you think is your neighbor. You've turned Jesus' story into a self-serve salvation with a good example to try and live up to. But the good news from God is that we can inherit eternal life only by being befriended by and befriending Jesus, who was stripped, beaten, and gave his life for his friends. Friends, who, by the way, often look an awful lot like those robbers on the one hand, or those busy religious types who don't have time for mercy on the other. Jesus is the one and only Son of God, the heir who inherits eternal life. And he invites you and me to be his neighbor, his friend, to participate both in his suffering and in his inheritance. Inheriting eternal life is part of God's new creation into which we are brought by our trust in Jesus, in his death and resurrection. The whole story especially the piling up of all the details of the Samaritan showing mercy to the man who is half dead, points not to all his good works, but to his sharing in the suffering of the one who was beaten and left to die. Laying aside his own comforts, his own deadlines, spending his own resources, rearranging his own life for someone he doesn't even know. What Jesus is doing in this story is inviting you and me to enter his story, his suffering, his death and resurrection, in order to share in his inheritance. This is a parable of grace, not a parable of good works. And this is mercy, backwards, forwards, and upside down. And mercy wins. Did you notice there was a donkey in the story? Jesus is mercifully giving us all kinds of clues to who and what this story is about. Meanwhile, the lawyer dude and all of us with him are invited by Jesus to share in the suffering of someone who is our friend, who loves us and gave himself for us, to not take offense at Jesus, but to enter into his circle of mercy. What he means by go and do likewise is not trying to make ourselves acceptable to God by doing good deeds, but being drawn into the working out of God's gift of eternal life, in which, by sharing in one person's suffering, Jesus' suffering, showing him the mercy of taking his death seriously, we find ourselves covered in mercy and sharing in a life of mercy. But that's not always easy to do. Because though mercy is fabulously freeing, it's maddeningly messy. 
Things that seemingly were clear become exasperatingly beyond reason and calculation. In the realm of mercy, we're no longer moving from vice to virtue, but from virtue to grace. So how will you respond to the dead man, to Jesus? Are you too busy getting to the big dance to be merciful? Are you waiting to see who wins the bracket this year before you commit? Jesus invites you to inherit eternal life by having mercy on him. The one who was stripped, beaten, and left for dead. To take some time to take him seriously. Rather than by getting more and more wins by keeping the rules and being good, or by holding on to what you think you've got and making sure you don't foul out of the game because you brushed up against something or someone deadly. In the end, Jesus is both the dead man and the good Samaritan. He's the outsider, the loser, who also stops and comes alongside the rest of us who are beaten up and beaten down by the blows of life. Those who have lost friends, lost spouses, lost lives, lost hopes. He's the one who spends whatever it takes to bring us back to life, even if it takes losing his own life. Come, let your life be touched and transformed by the one who was beaten and put to death for you. He will bind up your wounds and include you in his binding up of one another. We will be celebrating his resurrection from the dead next Sunday, but you don't have to wait till then. Because he's alive today. He's on the road with us to the big dance. He's inherited already the whole creation. And he's busy reclaiming the mess of the world and the mess of our lives from the ravages of sin and death. Jesus offers you eternal life with him in this new creation that he is claiming. And he promises that his mercy, God's mercy which is eternal and infinite, will overflow into and out of your life to those around you forever. Come to Jesus. Forget the brackets. He is the bracket breaker. We already know who will be crowned the winner of the really big dance. Jesus. Because mercy wins. In fact, Jesus himself said, Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy. Jesus, have mercy. Lord Jesus, show us mercy.